Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, January 24th, 2022. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. If I am distracted as I begin speaking to you, it's because outside my window, uh, somebody is double parked and the person who is trapped in is honking you know, leaning on the horn for, you know, minutes at a time. And it's very hard to get your thoughts together. Isn't that exciting? Yes, you're getting just a little glimpse of what life is like when you are no longer in any kind of a studio. We're just, you know, we are now almost two years into doing this just from our homes and um, and our homes intrude on us. And uh, sometimes there are dogs barking. Sometimes there are cabinets being installed. Sometimes, I don't know. A has a neighbor who rings the doorbell, whatever happens. Um, this is maddening. So I'm going to let Noah talk about Ukraine. Noah, talk about Ukraine while <laughs> I try to drive, while I try to calm myself. What a transition. Um, <clears throat> so if you uh, hadn't been paying attention to the news over the weekend, uh, I guess you didn't miss too many dispiriting developments insofar as if you've been paying attention to this story, it's always dispiriting and getting worse by the minute. Um, <clears throat> the uh, buildup on the borders of Ukraine has not abated. It is uh, tensions are getting ever more higher. And over the weekend, the administration essentially uh, let everybody know that, you know, what's what we think is going to come is coming insofar as they're compelling non-essential state department personnel to evacuate the country. Um, the state department briefing over the weekend discussed the you know the the threat to american civilians in the country in the event uh the worst case scenario and um the state department said essentially well we have about 180 american civilians some 500 plus ukrainians working in the embassy most of them will be evacuated as far as u.s citizens state department officials said quote u.s citizens are not required to register with us and so it's not a number that we are able to share with you because we don't have a solid number and it's not helpful to share with you our estimated numbers so very familiar situation unfolding here um just about i guess six months seven months after uh the afghanistan debacle uh we're flirting with the prospect of yet another debacle in which you know everybody who wants to stay in ukraine will will be staying in ukraine to the tune of perhaps tens of thousands. We don't know how many American civilians are working in Ukraine, but this is not the mountains of Central Asia. This is a, a developed almost first world nation on the continent, on the border of NATO, a very educated, uh, affluent citizenry for the most part, especially in the West, um, with many ties to Western civilians, Western governments, and in the event of something really, really awful, we'll be hearing from these people in the most heartrending of fashion. One after you've already just gotten over the last most heartrending experience in which we abandoned Americans to a hostile foreign power. We're also the uh, the other interesting uh, development over the weekend, which which points to the fact that we are not really taking the lead on any of this as a as a power. The UK has been they've been shipping arms to Ukrainians, but they also announced Liz Truss, their foreign secretary, announced that they had pretty uh, substantial evidence that Putin has already picked a puppet to install in Ukraine once once their uh, likely invasion occurs. So there was uh, I mean, that news again, like we're, we're getting we backed the statement. So we were clearly seeing the same intelligence. Um, but it suggested to me that we're once again, we're kind of just hanging out waiting. What, what are we doing? What, what is the Biden administration's goal here when we well, see this kind of information happening? So there was a leak last night that I think everybody should take with an enormous grain of salt that uh, we are, you know, considering positioning five to 10,000 new troops somewhere in Europe on the ground. Uh, now, first of all, that that shouldn't even be something that would require an announcement. You know, I mean, like we have, I don't know how many troops we have in Europe, um, but, uh, you know, shifting a couple thousand guys here and there, that's what we do when we move an aircraft carrier. We move 5,000 people when you move an aircraft carrier. And yeah, people do, we do that to make a show of something and, and and uh, and and there are news stories about it, um, but you know, in this case, uh, that is not a significant deployment of forces, uh, and it does seem to be sort of tokenist in its form, um, but in an effort to be realistic, right? Because they're not going to move twenty five thousand or fifty thousand people uh, 
Russia, I just want to say, has you know some hundred thousand troops uh, now now marshaled. Right, and it's so, supposedly, and they can go up to like one hundred and seventy-five thousand or so. It is thought. So we should add I mean, that there have been some movements uh, in Washington and NATO capitals towards something a little bit more serious. Uh, <clears throat> Ukraine. Uh, Christine mentioned uh, the, the the movement of lethal aid, not not just defensive aid, but lethal aid into Ukraine by London. Um, Washington approved the the movement of lethal uh, armaments that we provided to the Baltics from the Baltics into Ukraine, which is a, a nice move. And, and the NATO NATO forces are on standby. But there's also uh, to to move to this area, which isn't just Washington, but most NATO capitals. But also, the USS Harry Truman is in the Mediterranean right now with a strike group in preparation for Mediterranean exercises, Neptune Strike 22, which is supposed to begin next month, at which point, you know, we've got military exercises led by Moscow and Belarus. Uh, Russia's having this global naval exercise, which is going to involve forces from the Aleutians to the Irish Sea. Uh, and we're having our own military exercises as well as China. China's making movements of naval assets off the coast of Japan right now. Uh, so there's a lot of near peer flexing all over the world. And this is, I mean, it's like a cliche to say this, Abe, but, um, you know, this is what happens when the vacuum is created. The vacuum is created. Americans uh, make it very clear. American leaders make it very clear that they do not want to be the sort of dominating superpower on earth. Uh, Trump started it. And uh, I mean, you know, leading from behind, maybe you could say Obama started it with the leading from behind doctrine, Trump sort of uh, doubled down on it. And now Biden is effectively doubling down on it, although he doesn't like the results of it, right? Because that that's, you know, it's not as though they are trying to signal even, even him saying minor incursion. He's not trying to signal Putin that it's okay. Like he, he's trying, they're trying to make clear that it won't be okay. But uh, whatever leverage our implied power has has been degraded over the last well, when was uh leading from behind 2011 so the last 11 years has been um you know has been a an, a, a long-term message to the world that we are looking to no longer be the big dog that you have to be afraid of um that might be unleashed on you and the chickens are coming home to roost against the dog. So you can see how my animal analogies are getting in the way of reasonable thought. Central, the central foreign policy messages of the past three presidents have been <clears throat> about the, the virtues of American retreat. Um, both sides, we need to say, Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives now talk about forever wars. Um, this, this, you know, this has been the driving force, uh, behind our, our, our retraction from, from, from various places around the world, even Hawks or even one-time Hawks are kind of depressed. They wring their hands because we never do it right anyway. Uh, yes, it would be good to go in. It would be good to fight this, but we, we, we can't fight it. So, so of course, who, who is looking on most closely? Vladimir Putin, Beijing, and they are acting accordingly. The, the, the insignificance, the relative insignificance of the Camp David talk over the weekend about um, building up troops, sending weapons, is highlighted by the fact that in Biden's disastrous press conference last week, he said Putin can succeed in doing this. Uh, that was one of the many things he said. It, was, it didn't it didn't garner a lot of attention. But if if the president of the United States, the commander in chief, has already announced that it is a foregone conclusion that Putin can succeed. What is even the point of of this buildup uh, on a practical or tactical level? There's also, I mean, I think building on that point, that's a good, uh, both what you said earlier, John, and, and what Abe is adding. There's another thing going on here, which is if you look at the way that Putin and certainly China has been talking this way for some time. If you look at the way Putin and his emissaries speak about uh, looming conflict, they're talking a very different long game than we are. So I want to point to some weird, there was a weird, the Russian foreign ministry uh, denied the, uh, the, the claim by 
Britain over the weekend that that they have a puppet ready to install. But listen to the wording they use. They said the spread of disinformation by the British foreign ministry is one more piece of evidence that NATO countries led by the Anglo-Saxons are escalating tensions around Ukraine. That really I was like led by the Anglo-Saxons. What is this idea that the West's moment is over? And the rise of, you know, whether it's Russia or Asia in general, that 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 we are about to be eclipsed, that kind of rhetoric, they are speaking that way to their own people quite a lot. And that is and meanwhile, we're like, well, in this little particular skirmish that might pop up, we're going to we don't want to do a forever war. We're we're kind of missing the forest for the trees in terms of how rhetorically and and as a long term vision for for strategic power, how we're dealing with these issues and how they're talking to their own people about how they're going to deal with these issues. So I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I, here's where I'm kind of at a loss. I mean, look, one of the things that Biden said when he played pundit during the press conference and said, look, he'll probably go in is, I mean, there is a, there is a deep acknowledgement of a, of a, of a reality that was true during the cold war as is, as it is true today, which is that when, when push comes to shove, when the tanks rolled into Prague, when, you know, when the Hungarian revolution was crushed, when solidarity was crushed and all of that, uh, despite all of our rhetoric, like there was just not much that we were going to, we were not going ultimately to pull the trigger on a massive conflict over these things. And all of that had long-term consequences also, because you could sort of make the argument that had we been more resolute in Hungary in 1956 a lot of stuff that happened in the 60s 70s days might not have happened but you can't you can't roll you can't prove that you can't you know you can't run a run a simulation that will prove that 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 happened and so here we are in 2022 and Putin is behaving is in some sense you know sort of like punching above his weight once again as a superpower. Russia is no longer a superpower, but it is one of the two countries in the world that is willing to act like a superpower. I mean, that's the interesting aspect here, which is that Putin is willing to do things that other countries are no longer willing to do on a massive scale, uh, challenging the, uh, you know, sort of like international order and the framework of the international order, China being the other. China is a world superpower. It has the second largest economy on the planet. It has the largest standing military or something on the planet. You know, it's it's an economic powerhouse. It's a, you know, it's it's making all kinds of aggressive moves in its in its own near abroad in the you know in the waters of the South China Sea. These are the two countries that are willing to act like super. It turns out that if you just act like a superpower, if you, it's almost like you know the secret or you know, or like modern. Um, uh, you know, new agey thinking, it's like thinking it's like uh, Putin is manifesting himself, uh, you know, as as the successor to the czars or to the or to the to the to the Soviets uh, from a, from a position of relative economic and military weakness. But if he's if he's willing, if he's willing to use it and play the game and be ruthless about it, guess what? You can get a lot done, I guess, particularly when you just aren't you don't you're not afraid of the United States anymore. And he's clearly not particularly afraid of either the well, good uh, no, that's, I don't think okay. that's true, um, <clears throat> because, you know, if you listen to the voice of the Kremlin, the state media apparatus, they're very clear about what the objectives of this gambit are. And they're pretty clear that it has nothing to do with Ukraine. When an anchor on Russian state TVs said that, quote, there's there's still a chance to reach agreement with the Americans, we propose creating a new global security architecture. But they harp on about us being about to invade Ukraine. This isn't about Ukraine. The scale's much bigger. And it's true, because what their objective here, if, if the submit this uh, this effort to submit to questions to the State Department that they'll answer uh, in a uh, written form this week, demanding a variety of things, including basically the abandonment of the former Warsaw Pact, pairing back troops deployments in what used to be the Soviet sphere, and uh, gifting them this ability to override the sovereignty of the, the states that used to be uh, former Soviet republics. They're asking us to gift them a sphere of influence. They want us to surrender this, to give it over. Yeah, there's a gun to our heads, but it's also a gun to their own heads. 
because they're talking about destabilizing a country on their border and creating a refugee crisis and all of a lot of things that they don't actually really want. So what they're asking here for is for us to submit to their demands, which isn't a position of power. It's kind of kind of sad. Um, But nevertheless, you know, it'll work as long as the you know, they're pretending to be a superpower while we're pretending we're not. And as long as that dynamic pertains, then, yeah, they can probably get a fair amount of concessions out of us. But I mean, that's I just want to say that's, you know, Putin's genius. It has to be granted. So he wins either way. Uh, you know, if he doesn't get the concessions, then it then it is about Ukraine, and he does want Ukraine. It's not it's not that it's not about Ukraine. He's got he's got assorted ambitions. That's that's one of them. Getting the U.S. you know out of out of Europe is another. Um, he'll take what he can get, and he does take what 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 he what 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 he's given. And that is only that only works as long as there's a conception abroad, particularly domestically in American politics, which abandons the long held objectives that the United States has maintained since World War II in Europe, which is to be a European power. The United States is a European power. That was something that we had projected throughout the Cold War and was conceded to in Malta in 1990, I think, or early 1991, uh, when the Soviets, as the empire was coming unstuck, conceded to this conception of the United States as a long-term European power with the military interests on the continent. And that was something that was that Russia, Moscow, the successor government was willing to concede to and indeed found advantageous. The, the, the way you, you, you put it, I I have a certain level of objection to because the, the complication of the United States and its position as a global superpower is that we are not comfortable with our position as a global superpower. I mean, this is, the, this is the endless struggle of the existence of the United States dating back to George Washington's farewell address. We should not go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. We should avoid entangling alliances. You know, we are a pure, better place. We don't need to be corrupted by this endless series of conflicts on the European continent that avail us nothing and are all part of the sclerotic reason that the United States had to be created in the first place. So that that is like written, not quite written into our DNA, but is very much, you know, part of the American spirit from the founding. And we ended up as a European power by default because the Europeans were not, the Europeans destroyed their power systematically in, in two conflicts that ended up eating them alive. And well, so I, I, we I get it up... as a, theoret- a theoretical matter, as a phil- political philosophical matter. I get it. And it's actually rather laudable. However, these same people were on the warpath trying to buy Greenland a few years ago. What tectonic plate do they think Greenland occupies? Okay. Wh- which people are you talking about now? Um, the nationalist right, primarily, and the NATSEC left, you know, the, the scoop jacks okay. and Democrats to the extent they exist. Okay. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm talking, it's a much broader brush here, which is, which is to say that we, we in the United States or the United States uh, has to, has become, you know, became the dominant superpower on earth. It has been the theory of the leftists that uh, leftist foreign policy people, that this happened in order to sort of be a handmaiden to capitalism or to, you know, to, to work for United Fruit or, you know, uh, interests abroad and, you know, or to, you know, the military industrial complex, to fund the military industrial complex. The truth is that we're not comfortable being, uh, you know, being a European power in the sense that we don't want to be all things being equal. We wouldn't want to be a European power. Most this is a new thing on the planet Earth, that there should be a powerful country that doesn't particularly have as its in its hunger the desire to be a dominating power you know forcing other countries to our will or people to our will because that's just what the nature of of humankind is now people may say that that's naive of me to say and i'm being you know this is a, a myth and all of that but it's actually true that every time uh we have the you know almost every run for the presidency involves somebody saying or not everyone but you know we said three presidents right we said obama trump and biden have all engaged in retreat four i mean george w bush's message in 2000 was 
we need to be more modest. Our foreign policy needs to be more modest. Like we we can't be overextending ourselves like this. We need to fix problems at home. And then 9-11 happened and that that message, you know, completely fell by the wayside. But um, he ran on that. Uh, and so that's a very powerful impulse in the American body politic. The, and once again, what we learn about it is that it is the tragic, you could even look at it this way, it is the tragic consequence of having been left in the position of being the most powerful country on earth, that if you don't exercise it or you don't um, sort of like use the position to be some kind of a managerial force uh, on the planet, even if it's, you know, just relatively light fingered, um, all kinds of bad things are going to happen and you don't know what they are. You can't project them. You know, you didn't know that you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know that ISIS is going to rise up when you pull out of Iraq. You know, you that's that's part of the that's that's part of the reason that you don't do stuff like that because um, uh, stability hasn't been achieved. And in instability, not only do things happen that are destabilizing, but they're unexpected and weird, and they're off kilter, and they're not quite part of what you ever thought they were going to be. This is why I think the 20th century uh, and the 19th as well, we had a very, it was easy for Americans to tell themselves a story about how we would go to war over ideals, when in fact, we often went to war over territory and power disputes, as most countries do. But we, we, had, a, we had a way of telling ourselves, explaining to ourselves as a country why we would go into certain wars at certain times. It, these weren't always completely truthful narratives, but they had a kind of effect as a, as a way of seeing ourselves as a nation. And I think we, lo- we have lost that in the late 20th and, and early 21st century. That's gone. So now we're kind of the world's bouncer. We're not even the policeman anymore. The policeman has some sort of uh, acceptable authority. We're the bouncer. Like, we're, you know, we, we stand there and when a skirmish breaks out, as you say, John, especially a weird skirmish somewhere where it's like, what do we do here? We're the bouncer. Like we're huge, we're powerful, but we're only called into action on certain occasions when things get kind of rough and then we're done and we're out and there's no kind of governing philosophy there. And I think that, that I think from a, from the standpoint of people, we also have a number of presidents who've never served, which is a new thing in our history as well. A lot of these guys have never served in the military. They have no strategic experience as a soldier or as a commander. Um, so that also, I think, affects the foreign policy that that's pursued and certainly the way it's described to the American people. So it is a weird time, but I'm not sure being the world's bouncer is really something that's all that galvanizing back here at home from a domestic standpoint. Also, a bouncer has a boss. Yes. Bouncer doesn't make the decisions, right? The right. bouncer is like, OK, that's go why, get that yeah, guy, exactly. right? And we exactly. don't have a ball. We don't have we if we're the bouncer. That's the vacuum telling us vacuum. to do. Right. There's, I mean, of a not insignificant side effect of much of what we talk about, which is the drop in national pride on both sides of 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 uh, the ideological spectrum in the U.S. The sort of anti-American sentiment about domestic life in the U.S. and domestic policies on both sides. A not insignificant side effect is is that people say, well. As used to kind of only happen among uh, liberals on the left, people say, well, who are we to to be the police or the bouncer, or the global police or the bouncer? We are we are a mess. We are we are uh, full of inequalities, inequities, if you prefer. Uh, we have we have abandoned our working class. Uh, there's a there's a there's a kind of um, uh, bureaucratic tyranny at work at home while we're complaining about tyrannies abroad and so on. And and so it's it's that is new. I mean, that is new. It, it is new, but it's also not new. I mean, it's a, you could you could look at it as a as a kind of um, yeah flowering of uh, of a certain type of creeping leftist ideology that has infected a classic right wing tradition. Um, you know, isolationism in America has always been uh, has always been a force on the was or traditionally a force on the right. You know, there was a huge fight inside the Republican Party after the Second World War about how how far we should go to, you know, uh, help uh, provide security in Europe, for example, or would we 
uh, Greece and Turkey both being uh, threatened by communist takeover. Was that something that we would get involved in? And there was this famous, you know, fight essentially in the in the Republican Party between uh, between Taft, uh, Robert Taft, and Arthur Vandenberg about would the Republican Party support the Berlin Airlift, you know, all sorts of interventionist efforts to prop up, you know, a a non-Russian, non-Soviet thing going on in in, in Europe. And and in that case, the kind of liberal order opinion ended up prevailing. But that was that wasn't clear that that was what was going to happen at the outset and that voice that washingtonian voice entangling alliances and don't go abroad in search of monsters destroy all of that was very much present now that was 80 years i grant you look that's now close to 80 years ago and and when i make reference to that like when i was coming up and we were talking about isolationism versus you know interventionism that was still fresh it was still 30, 35 years in the past, it's now 80 years in the past, there is almost no isolationist, we are, we're seeing a kind of revival of this isolationist voice that hasn't really had much force since then. But I, I, I think the new element is this, the idea, the popular idea that we are, are not a sufficiently credible moral force in the world. Uh, it's, not, it's not just that this is a waste of our resources and it's none of our business, it's 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 that who who are we to even say what's right and wrong overseas? Right. Well, and you know, and you can date that if we want to talk because uh, I think Noah does. What we want to engage some of these questions about about the about the conservatives in America and where and whether there is a larger trend, an intellectual trend in one direction or the other. I mean, you can say you can date this to um, this highly controversial symposium in first things in 1996 um where this uh you know neocon catholic publication uh published this uh symposium sort of questioning whether or not the american regime had become illegit morally illegitimate in part because for 20 years after the roe v wade decision the right had been expecting and anticipating that the supreme court would finally hear a case uh, on Roe to overturn Roe, and it came. It was the Casey case in 1992, and Roe was not overturned. And so the idea was, okay, there, you know, there was all this uh, moral force, Reagan, the economic growth, and you know, with political success, uh, and uh, you know, growth of Republican Party, and you know, retarding the Soviets and all of that. But there was this terrible moral stain in the United States: murder, abortion, being murder. And so uh, finally, this was supposed to be the nail in the coffin of this terrible policy. It was upheld. It was even upheld by a Catholic who had been appointed to the, largely had been appointed to the Supreme Court as a Catholic in the thought that he might be pro-life. That was Anthony Kennedy. And then, the, then um, Casey has decided uh, as a, that uh, role will be, remain as, as precedent. And so two or three years later, uh, serious intellectuals on the right are saying, uh, sorry, America is no longer legitimate. There was a huge hue and cry. A commentary and first things fell out over this. They were very allied, very friendly. Everybody was a buddy. Uh, Gertrude Himmelfarb quit the board of quit the board of first things, you know, sort of no, notable, you know, the, maybe the, the right's greatest historian, uh, wife of Irving Crystal quit the board of first things over the over this symposium on the grounds that it was, you know, intellectually scandalous to say that the American regime was illegitimate. But if you think about that, and you think about the language of things that we're seeing now today, 25 years later, those echoes are still there. And they're, a lot of them are being expressed in the pages of first things, which had pulled back from this kind of test of the regime illegitimacy argument and then when trump when trump came along and they kind of threw their hand in with trump to some extent the conditionality of the trump surge was uh trump was successful because he is challenging the legitimacy of the american regime and now of course if the american regime if uh, if trump loses in 2020 as he did 
then uh, then that challenge has now been proved to be uh, he was right and the regime is illegitimate and so therefore what are we doing going around we are we are we are a morally stained country we haven't lifted all of these uh we we have advanced socially destructive uh radical ways of life uh destroying uh, you know traditional american ways of life and all that and here we are now um and what's more part of this argument uh now has become uh, that we will stain other countries with our liberal, with our disgraceful post-liberal monstrosity by going there. We're, yeah, we're I'm going inclined to, to see turn, a lot of yeah. this as a superficial exercise in rhetorical and uh, solipsistic reasoning, uh, in part because a lot of it's very superficial. I mean, when Donald Trump talked a big game about bringing American troops home, and then when he engaged in a unilateral strike on uh, on uh, Iranian assets inside uh Iraq very successfully eliminating Soleimani from the battlefield. Everybody was thrilled, thrilled about it, about this muscular exercise uh, of unilateral exercise of U.S. Uh, policy. And you would expect that this would be something super superficial and solipsistic when you conflate abortion rights in the United States with preserving the geostrategic realities that existed in the continent since 1945. I mean, that's just a non sequitur unless you're very steeped in a particular worldview that privileges attacks on your domestic enemies over everything else that you can't see past your own domestic adversaries and everything is subsumed in this framework in which uh even geopolitical events abroad somehow relate to your all-consuming hatred of the people who are your neighbors and that's a, that's a mania that but clouds not, your vision but it's so it's not abortion rights for everyone i mean look the main one now if we're to, you know the main objection to our going around <clears throat> um, and uh, schooling or punishing non-democratic countries is that, oh, they don't have free and fair elections? Well, neither do we. We're, we're, we, we, we pretend this is a, we, we've been, it's been proven. So, so the right. false argument we're, goes we're on... that, 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 that we don't even have a democracy and we're gonna go around uh, punishing countries that that are at least are straight up straightforward about it. We're on the same page. Then they dislike yeah. America. They well, dislike look, that, the status quo yes. in America. Well, they obvious, dislike American obviously. foreign power. They dislike yes. the status quo that we inherited from our parents. Hard won status quo that we inherited from our parents. They hate it all. Right. Well, that's the point here is the regime is we have become a moral stain. I mean, that is the that is the that is the implicit view of no, whereas you know George Washington said we should avoid entangling alliances because we are pure and they are corrupt and old and well then the point know, I'm getting incestuous. at is that it has almost nothing to do with the specific foreign threat that we're facing whatever it happens to be at the moment it's just an excuse to prosecute these grievances that are irresolvable well so you take you take the grievances Okay, and then you unite them with this question, which I think is a fair, which 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 is where we get into areas of where things are. It, it's an interesting question to debate. Okay, we're sitting here with a, a crisis in competence inside the United States. People don't trust institutions. They don't trust the CDC anymore. They, you know, there's a poll out that shows. A, a, a astonishing shift in public opinion against the CDC, which was like trusted by 70% of people in at the beginning of the pandemic is now trusted by 40% of people now, stuff like that. So, but, you know, it's crisis of competence, nothing works right. Things are screwing up, you know, all of that. And then we have uh, American foreign policy and American foreign. And then part of the thought here is, well, nothing we do works. We went into Iraq. We didn't win. We went into Afghanistan. It was a forget forever war. Like we don't we we don't get done what we want to get done. We're not doing it right. We don't know what we're doing. We shouldn't do anything because we stink. We stink at it. We stink at doing things domestically. We stink at doing things in foreign terms. And so, you know, the best we can hope for is you know, let, let's just see what happens cuz look look how crappy everything got when we tried to do things now what's funny is of course it's not funny at all because we haven't really had this appropriate reckoning but uh yes 
Iraq was incredibly hard, incredibly bloody, uh, damaged America's reputation. It may have been, you know, we may have gone in uh, with the wrong understanding of a threat, the, the direct threat to the United States and all of that. But here we are in 2022. Iraq is, unlike the 40 years prior to when we went in, Iraq is no longer a threat to its neighbors or to the region. It is a weirdly functioning, you know, messy, uh, corrupt country. But um, it is, you know, it is, uh, it is not the, it is not the, uh, the home and domicile of a psychopathic, uh, maniacal guy who sought to destabilize the entire region and take over countries and all of that. Uh, in the end. We can say that Iraq was a mistake till the cows come home, but the end result wasn't what we wanted, but it's not terrible. And similarly, when we pulled out of Afghanistan, it suddenly occurred to people, you know, where Afghanistan is now isn't so bad, all things considered. Look what's about to happen. And in fact, every story that we get out of out of, I mean, there are horror stories every day out of Afghanistan we're not even paying that much attention to, you know, musical instruments being smashed, you know, the destruction of, you know, women being forced out of schools, being beaten in the streets, you know, like all the, all the stuff that you, that we expected would happen is happening. We're just not focused or concentrated on it. And so we have this weird thing where, um, Nobody is actually standing up for the, for the fact that messy and horrible and nightmarish as some of these things may have been, the net result, yeah, the net result wasn't that uh, Berlin, had, you know, Berlin, which was where, you know, World War II was launched from and was the most, had center of the most evil regime on earth, that, you know, 40 years later, Berlin is like Mr. Hipster city where everybody goes and parties all night and Tokyo has become, you know, this, um, ultra glamorous, uh, you know, center of fashion and, 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 and culture and all of that, that hasn't happened in these places, but other stuff has happened. And there's nobody standing up for the fact that bloody and messy and incompetent as it may have looked. In fact, we, 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 we actually got a lot of our objectives <laughs> secured in these places. We could have a long argument whether or not it was worth the blood and treasure but it wasn't worth less. And that's where we can't have an honest conversation anymore about, about the projection of American power. And by the way, we can turn places into post-war Berlin and Tokyo. But if you think people object to the kind of wars that we've uh, <laughs> launched in the, in the past 20 years, imagine, imagine what, what they'd say about the kind of wars that would accomplish that. Right. Well, I don't think anybody's saying you want to turn them in. That's the funny part about this is um, when the post-war order was being built so that there was suddenly peace in Europe after a thousand years when when Europe was nothing but a charnel house of war and destruction and nobody had any, you know, if you, you know, nobody had anything to do. So they just went and invaded each other all the time. It's like, uh, uh you know, suddenly that ends. And, um, you know, again, it's like stuff gets taken for granted. You know, uh, the, 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 the transformation of Japan after, after the, you know, the, the shogunate followed by the, by the imperial regime, you know, the most, uh, as Paul Johnson said, the most militaristic and violent society on earth is like turned into this weird pacifist uh, powerhouse that then, of course, starts to have a you know is is now in trouble because of because in fact it seems to have lost too much of its mojo. Let's say, um, oh, well, but everybody, but everybody takes that for all of that that transformation. We never got credit for while it was going on. American foreign policy thinkers and the world's foreign policy thinkers never took the never said. Oh my God, things are happening here that have never happened before on the planet Earth. Militaristic societies are turning into placid rule follow, you know, like, you know, it's beyond belief. Can I just make a side note about Germany losing its uh, mojo, as you say? Uh, yeah. Um, it's, it's Japan a, is what I meant, but oh, yeah. oh, well, it's okay. But you, Germany's lost its mojo too. Go ahead. Well, well, you know, a huge part of the, the crisis that we now face with Russia um, comes down to uh, Germany's unwillingness 
to to um, sanction Russian energy. Um, and this, in large part, has to do with um, the runaway environmental catastrophism that was embraced in Germany. Their whole anti-nuke, anti-coal program that was largely exacerbated after the, Jap well, here's Japan again, after the Fukushima yeah. meltdown, um, the announcement that they were going to get rid of all uh, 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 nuclear plants. So they have, they have been engaged in doing so since then, since before then, and that has made them completely reliant on Russian gas for energy, um, which is why they cannot even begin to countenance the kind of sanctions that, that we, would, we would like them to um, place on Putin. And it's, 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 a, it's, it's presented a massive weakness. And this is why, this is part of why, whether you, whatever you believe in terms of uh, global warming or not, um, if you react to everything as if it is the, the greatest crisis in the world, you are going to misallocate resources and create huge dilemmas and crises in other areas. And we're seeing it. I think that's-, that's There's that's... a weird contradiction in how they're behaving because the natural outgrowth of this kind of uh, outlook in Berlin towards Moscow as being this gas station on which they're reliant uh, is to concede the territorial gains that Moscow has made since 2014, obviously. I mean, just say it out loud because that's essentially the policy they're pursuing without saying it out loud. And that's exactly what German naval, when a German naval chief said over the weekend, quote, Ukraine has lost Crimea to Putin. Huge outcry over the articulation of what is essentially German foreign policy. And he had to resign because it was something you can't say out loud. So they haven't fully reconciled the logic of their geopolitical approach uh, to say to say what their policy is allowed is to sacrifice your political career. Uh, look, um, we uh, we are we're we're sitting here on the on the cusp of something, and everything is being discussed about what is going to happen as we are sitting on the cusp of something. And it we find ourselves in an interesting position because uh, the real question is. Is Putin being reckless or is he being visionary? Does he, does he know, is, you know, I, I mean, 10, 12 years ago, we were publishing pieces about how he wasn't going to last much longer. There was a lot of public uh, dismay in, 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 in Russia, uh, massive protests. Um, he was kind of an empty suit who had risen far beyond his far above his station, but ruthless, ruthless and tough and corrupt. Um, but the idea that he had sort of an intellectual vision, a true intellectual vision of, you know, restoring Russia back to the, you know, back to its alliances dating back to the 14th century. And that was like a misunderstanding of who Putin was and how he functioned, that he was much more improvisatory and uh, and, you know, just. Um, and I think that's what Biden is wrestling with when he had that bizarre peroration about, you know, it's all up to one man. He maybe he hasn't decided, maybe he has. He'll probably go in. Maybe he won't. Maybe he will. Is that I think that I think Putin is, you know, is the, I think now the longest lived uh, leader, uh, you know, uh, in the West. Uh, and um, he uh, he is opaque. It's 20 years, more than 20 years. And people don't know, is he a flake? Is he like, you know, is he a vision? Is he a genius? Is he, does he, is he, is he um, uh, creating a long-term vision of Russia that will survive him after his death? Is he restoring something that was, that needed to be, that in his view or Russia's view needed to be restored? Or is he just a thug looking to enrich himself with hundreds of billions of dollars and stowed bank accounts and I, I think the truth is it's 20 years and 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 the wisest minds on earth and the people who study him and all they don't know they don't know who he is bush said he looked into his heart we've now had you know uh four presidents who claim that they can take the measure of putin four right i mean biden said in 2020 Putin, Putin wants Trump to be president because he knows I can go toe to toe with him. I'm the only one who's gone toe to toe with him. Well, he's doing just a bang up job going toe to toe with him, isn't he? I mean, 
Bush looked into his heart. Hillary was going to do the reset. Trump said, you know, look, he kills people. We kill people. Um, he has managed to uh, flummox, confuse, baffle, and surprise West, you know, American president after American president. It's really staggering, you know. And and as I say, the people that I trusted long ago were basically contemptuous of his, you know, intellectual gifts at the very least, or his philosophical gifts, let's say. Um, and I don't know. I mean, he could be the great leader of of our time in the in the in the non moral sense of great leader, in the sort of like Napoleon sense, or the you know that he that he is taking this shattered, poor mess of a country that he runs and he is shoehorning it back into becoming the most important country on earth at least in terms of its effect on others well and he and he presents himself and as a representative of a country he he's been very this is why i think even the the trumps of the world have a weird admiration for him he uses his power violently and in extremist situations and makes no apology for it so in a weird way there's a kind of you know as all the western democracies are like not in our backyard we have our own problems why we don't want to get dragged into war again we've got bigger we've got more important things to do which you hear from the right and the left now i mean it's surprising to me how many people who identify as libertarian or conservative or you know uh, people who call themselves conservatives whose main argument now about foreign policy is we don't want to get involved in anything. We've got our own problems without seeing ahead strategically 10, 20, 30 years and say, oh, it's not a Cold War. Let's we don't need to get involved in this. But Putin does what he I mean, he good Lord, he, he's murdering Russian citizens on British soil. And the world goes, this is terrible. Nothing happens. He doesn't. I mean, it's it just he just does what he wants. And, and although his country is not as powerful as others, it's certainly not as powerful as us. There is a weird way in which he unashamedly and unapologetically and brutally uses that power that the West is no longer comfortable doing. And that is one advantage he has in terms of just the messaging to his own people. And 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 it does actually show up people like Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And, you know, the list goes on. We are engaging in this debate on terms that are unduly favorable to people who are hostile towards American foreign policy objectives and our traditional geostrategic objectives. We're not talking about going to war and even to entertain that notion is to lend undue credence to the arguments that they are making. Deterrence is not about starting wars. It's about preventing wars. <clears throat> making a tripwire isn't a bluff and inserting naval assets, area denial, anti-aircraft assets, and even troops along the NATO border isn't designed to ignite conflict, but to raise the prospects of preemptive conflict on Moscow's part, the costs of which to an unacceptable level. That's just statecraft. You know, and, and the refusal to understand and acknowledge that I think is willfully intellectually dishonest on the part of the people who are hostile to, to American foreign policy objectives, notably the right, but also on the progressive left, um, who refuse to acknowledge that our traditional deterrent strategy involves forward deployments. And we, if we want to deter Russian aggression, that's how you do it. So do you want to deter Russian aggression? That's the question that should be put to people who are hostile to our, to our current approach. And the sooner we had done it, the more effective it would have been. Uh, now it looks like a last second scramble and and, and a, a part of it looks like part of the cleanup, frankly, for, for for Biden's press conference. I think if you go back to 1990, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, um, that was 32 years ago. Um, you can see how stunning it was that the West achieved almost instant consensus that that could not stand. Now, it wasn't clear how it wasn't going to stand from that moment, but Bush, Thatcher, Cole, uh, Mitterrand, I believe, I mean, ever, nobody, there was no one on earth who said this can be allowed to continue it must be stopped and we then had sort of six months of very painful well it's like what are you going to do about it you know um and it, you know and the talk and yelling at 
Saddam Hussein and, uh, you know, American diplomats going over and trying to seduce him into leaving. April Glaspie was our was our negotiator there, our ambassador there, whatever. There was a whole world of people. But the entire West and indeed much of the planet was like, you know, if this if this stays, if the, if this is allowed to stay, the consequences of this could be like. Uh, you know, uh, global oceanic, you know, tsunami, because basically you're saying any country that has a problem with a, a na- neighboring country that it has some territorial dispute with can go in at will and the, and, and, and nothing will, nothing will prevent it from happening. It'll just be the strong over the weak and there'll be no consequences and all that. And it got to the point where we sent half a million people into the Persian Gulf to stop this from happening. That was 30 years ago, right? And and uh, and again, maybe as a result of everything of that and everything that happened uh, going forward, uh, we can't even talk about moving five to ten thousand men into into you know into Europe uh, without, and that now seems like a daring thing to do because, of course, we pulled everybody out of Afghanistan. I mean, I don't know whether it's a degradation. I don't know whether there whether there's any analogy to be drawn here. I mean, the analogy is that it's a lot worse if Russia invades Ukraine than it was for Saddam Hussein to invade Kuwait. I'm sorry, like you know what? What you know? This is this is the European continent. It is you know we're talking about the most important uh, alliance of countries in 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 the history of the planet. NATO falling to pieces, all of that, and um, and we have no consensus on anything. It should be said, however, that m- many of the same there were there was certainly a, a significant body of opinion that said, "Why would we go into uh, why would we go into Kuwait?" You know, and it's a lot of the same people. I mean, you're talking about the you know right wing libertarians um, who are leading this fight, who were, who had the same views back in 1990. You know, I mean the sort of reason magazine inquiry which was then uh, uh, a libertarian magazine like you know what are we doing and we're only doing this to enrich the military industrial complex blah 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 blah. so everything old is 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 new again there is this interesting combination though the fact that we've now layered in that libertarian distrust of uh you know or believe any kind of large-scale government action being bad with this morally infused idea this uh, conservative anti-Americanism that Noah talks about, like that uh, we we go abroad and we are bad, which was very much a leftist idea, governed leftist thinking from the 50s through the 80s that, you know, we're, we're stained, we're bad. And it very much influenced Obama's view of the world, that kind of academic leftist idea that was very prevalent on the campuses of major universities when he and I were both in college in the late seventies, early eighties, as we graduated the same year, him from Columbia, me from Chicago with you know, it was all abroad in the air. It wasn't, it was not, uh, any other ideas were, were, were unconventional, but they were leftist ideas. And now there seems to be more juice actually on the right with this idea that America is a, is a stained and, you know, and, and, and unhelpful country and that, um, it's moral influence is, is, is malign and not, not On the intellectual. Right. But I, I just don't see a whole lot of energy and enthusiasm for that position among right-wing voters. Espe- yeah. When, especially when there's a democratic president in office, yeah, everything's terrible and, and everything's awful and we stink and what have you. That's sort of this predictable negative partisanship sentiment. But again, when we exercise that power under Republican presidents or otherwise, there is a fair amount of enthusiasm for it. I don't detect that there's a, this broad groundswell of support for bring America, you know, the McGovernite view that has taken over on the on the right that, you know, America is so deeply flawed and, and a shambles and our domestic enemies are far more potent threats than our foreign adversaries. That's a sort of solipsistic worldview i think that makes the pages of big city newspapers and doesn't register among the voters we just we don't know that we don't know that that that's the case no not yet but i suspect the question will be put to the to the public rather in rather short order and i would definitively put my money on the table in favor of a classic conception of the exercise of american power particularly among rank and file right-wing voters i i hope you're right i just don't know that you're right 
then we just, you know, the, the simple fact of the matter is who's the, who's the voice, who's the electoral voice that is, that is saying what you're saying. Who is the, what, what's the voice in Washington that is saying what you're saying? I mean, there's a few to choose from most notably among them, Tom Cotton, right. Who's very clear and unequivocal about the need to deter Russian aggression. Um, Senator Ted Cruz uh, late last night came out and uh, went after our, our good friend, Sobra Mari saying, you know, very clear thinker here, but not in this case where he's saying that we have, should abandon our obligations to our European powers and also to the obligation to maintain American hegemony. Uh, that's, that's a guy who has his finger on the pulse of the nationalist right saying, you're wrong. Well, as I say, let's, let, let's see, because you know, none, none, none of the juice, not, none of the juice on the right is devoted to any of these topics. Like this is, again, this is a conversation that's very important to have Cotton Cruz, whoever is going to come out and say this, like a lot of these fights do take place at a, at a higher level than than the merely electoral, by which I mean, you know, at a more more abstract level than the merely electoral. The question is whether, you know, a presidential campaign will be will be run on that basis. You know, uh, everything we talk about, when we talk about, you know, putative 2020, 2024 and 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 uh, and Trump and who might face Trump or not face or whatever is all about uh, it's all all all, all domestic, domestic. Absolutely. So you set up a contest here, which really favors our position, because what is the Republican position going to be if Joe Biden has presided over a global humiliating well, disaster? Fair is it going to be just let's exercise that with a slightly more competence? I don't think so. Well, fair enough. Right. And you could. Yeah. Yeah. You can you can you can. Uh, you can talk bull the way the way the way Biden did, right? You can say, you know, Putin's Putin will be afraid of me. Ooh boy, you know, like that. Not like this guy. Um, I'm not sure what Trump will do because I don't think Trump actually will want to talk about anything except how bad Biden is or how he lost in 2020. And this is, of course, the longer term question that we will be talking about, you know, over the next two years as 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 the as the race grows closer and closer, which is. Are we going to be talking about what happens in this country after the election of 2024 when people are running for office in 2020, 2024? Are we going to be talking about what happened in Georgia and Pennsylvania in October and November of 2020? Is that what's going to focus and dominate the conversation on the right, which will be very destructive if that's the case? See, this is where my my uh, absolute uh, faith in in human nature uh, prevails, and I believe Americans, in particular, are highly impatient, forward looking people. And already there are signs that that you know that message. If you look at some of the polling about Trump in 2024, people don't really they're not as obsessed with that message as he himself you know, being an egomaniac is. And I'm I'm convinced if they have an alternative to that, they will take it even as they might continue to sort of right. indulge his angry musings and be like, oh, I mean, yeah, I get it. I know, I know, I hear what you're saying, but I don't think that that, I really do have more faith in the conservative American voter. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's misplaced, but. I mean, you know, moving on to that, just to complete with this thought, I mean, I do want to remind people, and it's very important to remind people because it is a terrifying, one of the reasons that it's fun to think about 2024 and all of that is um, we're sitting here, Biden is president. He'll be president for three more years, barring some, you know, something terrible happening. And um, uh, here, here we have the balance of forces. We have Russia about to go into Ukraine. We have inflation continuing to spiral. The only good news uh, in America right now is that Omicron is dying out and um, he can't even talk about it. He sort of talked. I mean, it's he, he started the press conference last week kind of talking about it, but they don't even have a vocabulary of optimism. They have no. And, and I guess you guys were pointing out that Fauci, who yesterday went on, I think, uh, George Stephanopoulos's show and said that it looks like we're, you know, we're Omicron is going to go away, then said, don't be optimistic. It's like, what the hell is wrong with you? And you're going to need a fourth booster shot. Even though the results in Israel suggest that the fourth fourth booster shot is uh, is inconsequential, right? And we don't even know how many people have taken the first booster shot. I thought it's forty percent. Didn't we have a number? I thought somewhere I saw forty percent of adults. Some confusion had. because it might have been conflating first shots and third shots, as far as I remember. Yeah. Who knows? But forty percent ain't a lot, even if that's the high end estimate. 
Right. Well, and the CDC is now floating this idea that they're, you know, they've been teasing this notion that they're going to change the meaning of fully vaccinated, which actually will affect a lot of people because more, you know, a lot of cities, my own included, and, and certainly New York have a requirement for vaccination for a lot of activities. So the idea that suddenly if you don't have the booster, you're not fully vaccinated again. I mean, that is not over the weekend, by the way. Go look online if you're curious. A lot of people in, in European capitals, including Brussels in particular, protesting uh, mandates, protesting a lot of the COVID, more draconian COVID protocols here in DC. We had a crazy anti-vax mandate, supposedly anti-vax mandate, but that actually featured a lot of crazy, just plain old anti-vaxxers like the hideous RFK Jr. Um, but you know, people have had it. They actually are protesting. You don't see the coverage of it is interesting to me, particularly what's been going on in Europe. Um, but I think enough, like the changing the idea that the CDC is now going to say, well, actually, you're not fully vaxxed after not, you know, after only getting to a certain percentage of two shots uh, taken. So they're just there's chaos and they're sniping at each other. Fauci was sniping at Walensky's decision to remove mask, rem, you know, no longer recommend constant masking. So they're the the collapse is is playing out in public now. But then this gets back to what Ukraine and the American response, which is you expect the American people to look at the government that is behaving this way and say, boy, they really know what they're doing in the Ukraine. You know, I'm, I, I have full confidence that Joe Biden and his people are going to, you know, bring a, a grown up sense of that's that they, they're going to unite the alliance and we're going to have a firm grasp on how to handle this, this matter. I mean, they, they can't, get anything right and so here we are in a crisis and and i i mean i think ultimately and we're sort of going now we're sort of meandering but i mean ultimately people want to believe that their government is you know in a crisis you want to believe that your leaders uh know what they're doing and that uh, that one of the one of the enormous failings of trump in 2020 was that he had a natural advantage in that the American people, even people who hated him like poison, had he been adult, mature, calm, and not sounded crazy, um, the public would have flocked to him. They looked for anybody to flock to. They flocked to Cuomo. They flocked to Fauci. They flocked to whoever they could, including, including DeSantis in the summer of 2020, whatever, because people want to believe that authorities in a crisis have their hand on the tiller and are being, you know, are, are guiding the ship. And uh, Trump blew that advantage by being inconstant and weird and saying weird things and not being able to focus and not being able to show some discipline. And this is exactly where Biden is on almost everything now, which is that there's no reason to trust, you know, if they say under his tutelage, because he is the head of the executive branch, uh, that uh, fully vaccinated now means boosters. I'm all for boosters. I got boosted and I got Omicron. Omicron evades everything. And I'm glad I got Omicron. I'm, you know, actually, because I'm now I'm now thrice, thrice vaxxed and I got Omicron and I figure that I'm probably, you know, the Omicron was very, very weak because of that. And it didn't affect me. And now I have antibodies from that, too. And so great, you know, uh, now we can move forward. But if they're not going to let can't us move forward, forward. no, with a with vaccine mandates, a mandate I, that allows I, that only allows you to engage in local commerce. If you've had a vaccine that doesn't prevent transmission. Makes no sense at all. Right. It's that's stupid. what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. It's not it's not it's not stupid. It is like the last gasp of a dying regime. I mean, that's the only way to look at it. They are not going to be able to pull that off. I mean, I, I actually think that in this case, raw political understanding on the basis of polls and focus groups that, you know, hard democratic groups are going to do, are going to tell them that this is ruinous for them. They so cannot start saying 250 million people have to get a third shot when 200 million pe when when 250 million people haven't gotten the first two shots like there's they all there I, I sorry to interrupt but there's there's evidence that this i mean we already know this is starting to happen so you know uh, when glenn youngkin uh, reversed all the vaccine mandates for state workers in virginia when he was elected and he's doing this stuff with masking in schools etc cetera, etc cetera, there's been all this media outrage 
um, the Ned Lamont, who's a Democrat in Connecticut, has been doing the same thing. He's going to let vaccine mandates expire, but it's done very quietly. There's no big announcement of it, but there are Democrats who are who are responding to the public's desire for this to end. But they are going to not be discussed at all because there's a partisan investment, particularly by the mainstream media, in pointing at or a DeSantis or someone does. Right. Okay, we've gone on way too long. I apologize uh, for keeping you. Um, maybe you put us on, you know, two times so that you could get through this <laughs> faster. Uh, that's what I would do. But now it's too late for me to advise that. I could have advised that at the beginning. Uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll be back to you tomorrow for Noah, Abe, and Christine. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.